Hey folks, this is Steve Vai, and you're listening to the 300th episode of Talking Blues. I was so sorry to hear about the fact that you had to postpone your tour. It must be devastating for you. Not at all. <laughs> I have faith. I have faith in what is. Okay, so when you decide that this is sorry, when you had the last operation, and, and um, well, let me let me clarify. Okay, I shouldn't say not at all. It, it was obviously, um, as you know in your life, and as everybody knows, we confront challenges all the time, you know. And I always, I used to see challenges as problems and obstacles. But um, through life, I learned a lot more about myself and about um, the quality of thinking, you know, uh, the quality of the kinds of thoughts we think. And I noticed something very interesting. When you look back at the past, so many times there's been situations where you expect that things should go a particular way and but they don't they change things change based on the way you expect them to go sometimes they fall into place the way you like it but i've come to the understanding that anything that happens to us is actually in our best interests whether we see it that way or not and when I look back at decisions I've made about doing certain things that have changed, I've noticed that when those challenges came and I've taken different routes, um, everything worked out. <laughs> it worked out somehow, you know, and usually, right. usually things that look like real challenges can be opportunities to find a better way to do something. But sometimes we're so rigid in the way we think things should go that if they don't go the way we think they go, we don't even see the great advantage of the changing that's happening. So when things like uh, tours come up that have to be moved for someone like me, yeah, there's a part of me that really wants to get on tour and play and, and be with the fans and be with the band and, 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 and that stuff. But... I just know it's in my best interest because, well, first of all, I can't really tour without getting my shoulder fixed. It would be a very bad idea. So I don't see it as a bad thing, but a good thing. I presume somebody like yourself, when, when you just realize, okay, we're going to move things back, you have tons of other things you were going to work on anyways. If it's not one thing, it's six others. <laughs> and is it easy to refocus? To say, okay, the tour is going to be on, put on hold. I know that you have to concentrate on um, the surgery and recovery. But beyond that, mm -hmm. do you say, okay, so I want to get these things accomplished before the tour? I like to set goals like that. You know, I, I, we always do that. You know, we're always kind of like setting goals. Um, and I, I, I've also discovered something very interesting I can only, a person can only get done as much as they can get done, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Okay. 
so what what we do when we demand that we do more than what we can actually get done we make a lot of compromises we make a we, we can compromise the quality of the goals because you're not your focus isn't in the goal it, it it's it's in the next goal do you know what i mean and getting it done on time see i've one of my greatest um challenges in life is recognizing when I'm a, when I psychologically become a slave to psychological time. And what I mean by that, it's when your life is run by a clock, you know, it's, it's very confining for some people. It's invigorating. You know, they know how to keep, uh, uh, keep the pulse going. And, uh, but in the creative arts, the job is done when it's done. That's what I notice. It, 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 it doesn't get released or it doesn't get completed until, and I'm not unlike a lot of other artists where you just say, it's just not done and I'm not compromised. There's no, it doesn't make sense to compromise because that's your work. And it, when it comes out, it's not as important as you feeling as though you did the best you can without the prison of psychological time forcing you to do things to compromise. So, uh, so what was the question? Though? I want to make sure. I... <laughs> well, I think you, you covered it. I mean, it, I, I wonder when you would realize that. I mean, when, when did you have enough sense to realize about things being done when they're done? It seems like a, a simple concept, but I don't know if everybody has that control or that ability. Well, they, they, they do. Everybody does, but we block it with our fear, okay? Your inner being, that the one that is creating all of the really cool stuff that feels good to you, it knows um, what, the, what the right moves are for you. And you can, you can connect with that if you can find some moments of stillness. So what I mean by that is, if a person can take their attention and back up a little bit and see the quality of the thoughts in their own head, <laughs> they can then have an opportunity to change them. If you don't know that you're addicted to a conditioned way of thinking, you'll never be able to get out of it, you become a prisoner of it. And so many times people become prisoners of this uh, self-deprecating uh, mental commentary about themselves. So when you do that, you have no access to your, your guidance, the, the instincts that say, this is done. You know what I mean? Because you, you, there's no space for that when what's on your mind is, well, is it done? What if, what if somebody thinks it's not done? What, you know, it, these, these, what if it's not good enough for this and that? And all of these kinds of unnecessary thoughts that disrupt your ability to know, ah, it's done. You understand yeah, what I'm yeah. saying? I wonder, so if we, if we go back, tell me first how you connected with music. When, when did music connect with you? That's an interesting story. I, I think, you know, the, the, one of the first memories I have was uh, 
walking up to, I think I was about four years old, four or five years old. I, I remember seeing, I, I heard music, obviously. I was unconscious of it in a way. Uh, but there was a piano, I saw pianos and things with keyboards on them. And my aunt had one, but you were never allowed to touch it. One day, I, one day when no one was around, I went up and I hit a note, you know, and I went, wow. You know, and I noticed they get higher one way and lower another way. And, and I kind of had a full on epiphany, you know, I, at that moment, there was two realizations that came to me. One of them was the construction of music. You know, I, I thought, Oh, this is how it's done. So because there was music on the stand and stuff like that. And I said, okay, those black dots, it was very obvious. I don't know why. Um, I think this is something that happens to people that are musically inclined um, I just had a recognition of what music was, you know, the composition of it. The, when I would hear music, I said, okay, I, I get it now. It's all kind of like this, you know, and it was really uh, a wonderful revelation, you know, because it was just boom. And then, and it all came like in a, in a moment. And also another realization that came at the same time, basically, or maybe a moment after was that I could create music and that the process of it was infinite and this is how you do it. You know, it, it, it was the realization that if I had musical ideas, this is how you can get them out. So there was this connection and I knew I had, I don't know why, I, I, not that I had musical ideas, but I understood the vastness of uh, the creative process of, of making compositional music. So that, then I pooped my pants. <laughs> <laughs> I was four. I hit the note and I went, oh, oh. <laughs> or maybe not. Um, but uh, that was the first time I could remember being uh, lit up musically. And did it want to make you follow music immediately did it make you want to play the piano not play yeah yeah it did but i had no um opportunity until my sixth birthday on six six sixty six i turned six and my mother gave me a little a little spinet organ it was a you know maybe about that big and i sat at that thing nonstop, making playing anything that I could possibly hear. And the first, the first actual melody I ever played was on that little organ. And I went right to it and I played it right off the bat. It was surprising. It was a, the, uh, a, a song uh, from the movie Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte with Betty Davis. It was a horror film. Yeah, yeah, and really scary. Scared the death out of it. I mean, you, did you see it? Yeah, yeah. It's free. It's freaking scary especially for a little kid and that that haunting lullaby like melody that goes hush hush sweet charlotte charlotte don't you cry hush hush sweet charlotte i'll love you till i die and that's what i i, I because that that movie was just like haunting me you know and i just went right up to the keyboard and i went boop 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 you know and i played it and i was like i made music scary music but you know it's music and and from there on it was all just you know anything i could play 
And then you picked up the guitar, I think, at the age of nine or somewhere around there? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. I, you... I first saw a kid playing the guitar in my uh, school auditorium. I think I was probably like six, and he was like nine. And he was like a god, you know, because he had a guitar on and he was nine. And I was only six or seven, whatever. And uh, that's when I really felt... Well, that's when I first really saw a guitar in its in action, you know, because this kid was just sitting, he was just sitting there strumming it, but it was the coolest looking thing I ever saw in my life. I was like, ah, you know, there it is. Oh my God, what is that? It looks so cool. I I, I thought I'm, I'm never going to play that. It's way too cool for me. Imagine what? that. <laughs> so I, I, I admired the guitar from afar until I was 12, and then I heard Led Zeppelin. And when I heard Heartbreaker, that solo, I couldn't believe it. I said, that's it. I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm playing the guitar, you know? And I put my radar out for a guitar, and a friend of mine had uh, one, Richard Jankowski, and he sold it to me for $5, and that was it. <laughs> was it that moment that you thought, this is what I'm going to do for my my life no i i never thought of that it's interesting um i never projected into the future like that because i had no idea what was going to happen i the only thing i knew was i really liked playing the guitar and i really liked music and that's what i wanted to do now and i feel the same way of course i set goals and stuff like that but i had no idea that um I would be successful in the music business. You know, that was just so far out of my thought zone, you know. I just liked playing the guitar. <laughs> and I, I presume you, you were obsessed by, that, by it. Yeah, I became pretty obsessed. I, I became obsessed because I think um, I had, a, I had a, a really good childhood, you know. There was some challenges when I got uh, in 10, 11, 12, you know, my father uh, was a great guy. He was a liquor salesman and a bartender. So he kind of got on the, you know, on the way. Uh, he, he was a drinker, you know, and this was not, you know, this is, creates dysfunction in the home. But when I was 12, he just quit drinking completely and just became the greatest guy I know, you know, and uh, always very supportive. And uh, what was the question again? I just wondered when you knew that you. Oh yeah. One... So so they were they were very supportive and they never really tried to lord over our decisions of what we wanted to do. They noticed I had a musical interest, but which was I might assume scary for them because uh, the you know parents understand not all parents, but. There's a concern if their child wants to be a musician because it can be a very challenging life, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but they were very supportive, you know. My father sold his life insurance policy to put me through Berkeley, and um, I just kind of, uh, I just kind of navigated day to day. So what happened was, I wasn't a very, um, I didn't, I didn't think a lot about myself probably. That's why I didn't start playing the guitar until I was 12. But uh, when I did, and I started to 
play, try to play things that I couldn't play, which was everything when I started. And then all of a sudden it would connect. That was like, um, you know, it would connect and I could play it and I was making music. That was uh, amazing because it gave me the feeling of dignity, of accomplishment. And these things are so vital for a youngster to feel because it's, it, it gives you a sense of dignity. It, it, uh, you know, it, it can allow you to feel more self-worth, so to speak. And it also became very addictive because I realized there's a great thrill in imagining something that you can't play and then working on it until you could play it. That's that, that to me is my idea of a good time, you know, and, and, and it, it's always a thrill to this day. It's the one thing it is the only thing. Well, there's of course other things, but the, but primarily the joy of being able to play something that, I couldn't play and then I worked on and then I, and when I say I couldn't play I don't mean because I I didn't learn the chords I'm saying a technique that's really difficult you know for me that I imagine and then work on and work on and work on and all of a sudden you can do it that's like heaven in a cup when did you think you were good well that's interesting because I think the reason why I I am good is because I never thought I was good enough. <laughs> and do you still feel that? Let me try to clarify that. I always felt content. I always felt appreciation for where I was at. But I always had a desire to get better and improve. And for many years in the, in the beginning that's what that's what you do you know you go through a period where you take in inspirations you you focus your your uh, attention on on the academics you uh, get your you, you hone your vessel you know uh, and as time goes on it's it's harder to get better you know in the beginning it's like uh, it quantifies you know mm -hmm. it, um, it, you, you get better exponentially but the better you get, it's like, you know, it's, to get that 2% better now is a lot of work. You know what I'm saying? But it's, but it's what I enjoy. So when you went to Berkeley, what, was, what did you think you'd accomplish? What were you hoping to achieve by going there? And what did you hope to get out of Berkeley? Well, when you're a young person and you're graduating high school, it's a, it's a, very interesting time. You're making a lot of discoveries. You're discovering your freedom. You're, you're discovering your independence. And going away to a college can be a great experience because, and that's what I, I, I wanted. I wanted to break, break out and out of my comfort zone of the great little town I lived in. And primarily, I, I wanted to go to Berkeley because I wanted to expand my uh, composition because first and foremost, before, as I mentioned, before I started playing the guitar, I was just interested in composition and I was writing doodling notes since I was, you know, I don't know, since I had my little organ and I have reams and reams of uh, pieces of music that I've just written, just written over the years, you know, 
So I really like the compositional process. And uh, yeah, that, that kind of merged with my love for rock and metal, and it kind of creates the music that I make. But you, you work with orchestras. Um, I presume that there is some classical background or there is interest in classical music. Yeah. Um, my greatest education came from the grades of seventh grade through 12th grade, because in my school, there was this music teacher. His name was Bill Westcott. And he was, this guy was like a savant, you know, and he um, ran a 12th grade music theory class. And when I was in seventh grade, the orchestra, the band at the school needed a tuba player. So I made a deal with them because they asked me, hey, why don't you take up the tuba? We need the tuba player. <laughs> so I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take up the tuba and play in the band if I'm allowed to take this music theory class starting in seventh grade. It was a 12th grade class. And I don't think there was a lot of negotiating there because they saw an eager student. So um, I started playing tuba and I started taking this class that was just unbelievable. Bill Westcott kicked my ass. He told me, he taught me everything about music theory that I use today. I, I learned little more at Berkeley, but, but this was five years in high school of intensive work every day. He would have me compose something and not just like chord symbols and, and a melody. I, I had to compose pieces of music and then break it out for various instruments in the orchestra. And uh, that I actually composed my first orchestra score in high school. So wow. that was always an interest for me. And when I finally uh, entered the, the, the world musical stage with Frank Zappa, that training came in very handy. But then when I was playing with all these rock bands, all my rock and roll chops came in handy. But in the background, there was a Steve Vai that was mixing these things together and saying, one day, one day I'm going to do this, you know. And I did it when I recorded Passion and Warfare, which has a lot of compositional elements. It's not an orchestral record, but you can hear kind of compositional elements. So um, if we go back to your time with Frank Zappa or before when you did the notation for the Black Page. and Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mako. I, I want to mention one other thing. Yes. I don't mean to interrupt. No, no. Um, but I really did enjoy Berkeley. You know, I, I went for a particular type of training and I got a lot more. It, uh, Boston is a beautiful city. Berkeley has changed tremendously since since I went. I've been there a couple of years ago, and it's it's fascinating. But I learned how to work with a lot of other musicians, and this is vital, you know, because at Berkeley there's just tons and tons of students, and you can pick and choose and work with any all these. They're all eager, and they're all hungry, and they're all they all have dreams and hopes. And it was an incredibly great environment for me. I just loved it. So I, I, I'm a, a strong believer of that kind of thing. Okay, so going, so in your time, during your time at Berkeley, you did some notations for um, Frank Zappa's music and sent it to him, mm -hmm. or as, that's what I read, and he was so impressed that he hired you, which is, did you know when you sent it to him what kind of response you'd get from him? 
Did you have a goal or? No, I just wanted to let him know that I loved his music and I was a big fan. And, uh, you know, when you, when somebody finds an artist that just kind of speaks to them, that you, you develop a connection and you want to express it to them. So that's, was really it. But I, I did send him a tape of my band and I sent him a transcription that I had done of one of his very complex songs called the black page. And, um, I was 18 at the time. So Frank actually, uh, was interested in trying me out for the band. But when I told him I was 18, he said, you're too young. And he hired me as a transcriptionist. So I didn't expect any of this that, to even want to try me out for the band. I was like, what, <laughs> you know, Frank Zappa, you know? So, um, and I love transcribing. So I started transcribing for Frank, everything from guitar solos and drum parts to orchestra scores, you know, and, um, when I, when I was 20, the day after my 20th birthday, I moved to California and started going up to the house. And that's when I started recording with Frank. And then I ended up uh, auditioning for the band. But I still kept my transcribing going. And one, one of my tasks at the time for Frank was at that time, when you write a song, you had to take the music and send it to Washington for, to, for it to be copywritten properly, right? So Frank, I had to go through Frank's entire catalog, entire catalog, and make sure every song had a lead sheet that had gone to, you know, was sent in for copyright. And th there were many that weren't. The songs were copywritten, but there was no piece of music, written music to back it up. So that, that was... Uh, like a year, year of just solid pounding, you know, and in the me in between all that, I was learning the guitar parts for Frank uh, and touring and all that stuff. So, um, What is it about the transcribing that you like? I like music, music uh, notation. To me, music notation looks like art. And it always had a deep fascination. It was like a mysterious language that I wanted to know. I wanted to learn it. And, and the funny thing was, it, uh, I kind of knew it. it. I think, you know, we come into the world with different uh, gifts, so to speak, different likes and dislikes and all this stuff. And, you know, why is it that some people come in and they are, they have a complete insight into or the ability to go deep into a particular field, you know? So I think what happened when I was young at that four years old and I hit that piano note, perhaps that compositional musical interest side of me lit up right at that moment. And uh, it was always a fascination with the little black dots. And transcribing offers the opportunity to especially transcribing Frank Zappa's music to develop your ear and also just play with notes. You know, I, I love to write notes and the, the dynamics and it's like art. I just love it. Okay. So <laughs> if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you're before you go to Berkeley, you're playing the bar circuit or the, the music scene in Long Island. 
Um, I don't know yeah. how, how, how much you've done or how far you extended that, but then all of a sudden now you're yes. playing with Frank Zappa, who, which is pretty yeah. high up on the musical hierarchy. What did you learn yeah. from that experience as a 19, 18-year-old guitarist? Probably a day doesn't pass where I don't think about that. Uh, I mean, use what I learned, hmm. you know. And I mean, I was very young, so I was like a sponge, and it was Frank Zappa. So I watched very carefully everything that he did and how he did it and just his overall thing. So I was a fan, too. So one of the things I recognized about Frank was... Um, what a free thinker he is, you know, he's not confined by as much conditioning. He understands the freedom of his own creativity, which a lot of people don't. And he made no excuses for it. When he wanted to do something, he just did it, you know, and his ability to be forensic with creatively forensic with all of the different aspects of the tools that he was utilizing such as music notation frank was doing things with music notation that i'd never seen in any score you know with rhythmic notation or anything like that he would like when he when he started working with the synclavier he would be writing to the company saying it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And it should do this this way. You know, this is what he did. And when he wanted to get a different sound out of his guitar, most people would be like, what, you're going to change the pickups? Frank, like, had a Jimi Hendrix guitar that Jimmy burnt in, at a concert. In, I think it was Miami or something like that. And that there was very little reverence paid to that guitar. He he tore it apart and he, he put the these parametric EQs in it and these, uh, these modulators and things, no one was doing anything like that. So he, this is what Frank did. So when you're watching that and there's nobody to tell you, no, you can't do that. You, you, you develop an attitude of what do I want to do as opposed to what do I want to do? And what is it that they're telling me? I can't what actually it's, what am I telling myself in regard to why I can't? Because you're the only one that obstructs your own ability to be creative, you know? Um, so that was something I took with me. And I didn't realize how much of that influence I was taking with me. And plus, Frank was always fair. You know, he never lied. <laughs> and he, um, what he said he was going to do, he did. So I, I, I picked that up and uh, to the best of my ability. Um, and there was things about Frank that I picked up that didn't serve me very well for, for a while that I had to recognize later and drop them. But for the most part, it was a win. Um, by the time you leave, do you know what you want to do? Do you know who Steve Vai is and what, what your musical path is going to be? Well, whoever we think we are is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. But when I had left Frank, Frank had, we, the, the last show we did was in Palermo, Sicily, 1982. And there was a riot. 
and three kids got shot. You know, it was, it was a tragedy. Uh, they didn't die, but Frank decided he was, he was quitting touring after that. And he didn't go out again for like three years or something, maybe even longer. I don't remember, but that's when he came down and focused on the Sinclavier. And basically I finished up a bunch of transcription work and that was it, you know? And I, at, at that point, I thought, okay, that was a nice stint. Now, now I, I'm going to go just do what I want, you know? And I bought a little house in Silmar and I built a little studio and I was happy as a clam. You know, I was just writing and recording all this crazy music and learning. And Frank was loaning me some gear and I was learning how to engineer. I always loved engineering. I didn't know what was going to come of it. I never expected to release a record. I, I expected to have fun recording and I was, re I was learning and I was recording all this crazy stuff. And then at one point I thought, well, why not release it? Huh? You know, I don't know. And, um, this is flexible. This is flexible. So, so that turned into flexible and boy, what a surprise. Really? It, 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 yeah. What a real surprise. Because the way I did it, you know, remember I was, I just came out of Frank and I was very naive and I had this record and, uh, the next thing you do is you shop it. So I shopped it around to a bunch of labels nobody knew what it was or even cared, you know, they're like, what, I'm not releasing that, which I kind of expected. And it was fine. I made it for me. You know, it was, I made that record for me and my friends to get a kick out of and, and laugh over. That's really, you know, and it was at a beautiful time in my life where, um, there was a returning of innocence. Um, it's another whole story, but you can hear it in the record. So I actually got an offer from this one label and they offered me like $10,000, but then they would own the record and they would pay me 25 cents a record. And my $10,000 would be recouped before I saw anything more out of that 25 cents. So I thought this was absolutely insane and I couldn't understand how they could even offer something like this where you give away all your, they're making all the, you know, and, and you lose everything. And I took it to my attorney and he said, well, no, this is, this is a good deal. They're giving, they're offering you $10,000. This is a, the, the structure of this deal is a conventional structure in the record business. And I said, well, then that's a business I'm not going to be a part of, you know, like that. And I just did a little stupid research and I discovered that a record company sells their records to a distributor who then distributes to the stores. So I thought, well, why don't I go right to a distributor? Which I didn't know that artists don't call distributors. You know, every distributor I called, they said, no, you, we only distribute labels. If you've got, if you're a label and you've got a lot of records, yes, you know. But I didn't, I had one record. But I found a guy, Cliff Coltrary, who was actually, he knew my career with Frank. And he ran a huge distribution company called Important Records. And he said, I'll take that record on a P&D deal. You, could, you own and control the rights. You just have to pay to have the record made, which was like 50 cents. And we'll give you $4.10 per record. You know, so I thought, wow, that's very different. As opposed to 25 cents and I lose all the rights, right? 
Well, they sold a thousand records, and I thought, holy mackerel, that's four thousand, you know, forty-one hundred dollars. That's a lot of money for me. And then they sold another thousand, and then another thousand, and then another, and then it just like once the attitude song appeared in Guitar Player, it kind of blew up. And uh, and then when CDs came out, I was getting seven dollars and fifty cents a CD. And through the years, I've I've sold like a half a million of them. So I want to ask you how how you learned about the business, but it, it seemed to be it just seemed to kind of land in your lap. Whereas maybe other musicians might have not questioned the contract or the deal that was offered to them. But you, for me, from where I sit, you seem to be very um, aware of your business and how you do things. Is that a correct assumption? I wasn't I wasn't aware of the business, but I was aware when I felt some some situation was trying to take advantage of me you know you, you know that feeling it's like wait a minute something's not right yeah. here but a lot of people a lot That's of musicians enough. don't have that feeling or a lot of musicians find well, because they're desperate. They, they act on desperation sometimes you know and and listen the, the conventional structure of a, the way artists and labels are it's not a terror i mean it's not a great one but it, it's Labels take great risks, too. So, for instance, that $10,000 that they offered me, they may not have recouped it even from their $4.10. You know what I mean? So so there there is a, you know, but the problem with musicians is they, they, they become intimidated by the thought of business. Uh, it's like, and and even some of them are proud of that. You know, they say, well, I, I'm, I'm a musician. I only deal with the music. I don't deal with the business. Right. And that's fine. As long as you have somebody that's got your back and you have to, you have to do at least that. If, if you, if, if it's totally of no concern for you to retain any of your intellectual property, to secure some kind of income for the future, to actually, um, uh, uh, understand how the business works so that you can make a living. If, if that's of zero interest to you and you're just the kind of person that just wants to play, that's fine. You know, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I can't say that you'd be better off or worse off. I assume you'll be much better off if you take a little attention and give it to your intellectual property protection. It's easy it's not that difficult. There's nothing to be intimidated about. As a matter of fact, it's there for you. So like, for instance, if you're a musician and you write music, it's, it's highly recommended that you start a publishing company. That protects your intellectual property. So a lot of musicians may say, publishing company? I'm not going to start any company. That's way too... Co no, no, no. You just go to like, you know, ASCAP website and you just, it costs like nothing. Well, maybe it's a couple of bucks. It's not that much, right. but creating a publishing company is very easy. It's not something you can't do. It's you fill out some papers and it's, and it's yours and you have, you're not, you don't have to file taxes on it or file a return or have you, you could do all that, but there's very simple ways. You open it up as a DBA or something and you're protected. It pays to kind of understand how, or to, to at least understand a little bit of the infrastructure of the music business. Because as a musician, through life, you, sometimes you're going to eat well. 
and sometimes it's going to be lean because our income goes like this as musicians. So it, there are many ways to monetize your intellectual property. And one of the things that musicians have going for them is your, when you monetize your intellectual property, it's evergreen, you know, as long as the something is still selling, you know, it, it's, you don't have to do anything anymore. Like for instance, one way that I, I did, which a lot of artists do is I monetize my YouTube account. Okay. So that's easy to do. And then any clips that come up that have me or my music or anything, they're captured by a company called Audium, you know, that searches the internet and then I monetize them. And I, I didn't even realize for, for like a few years how much money it was making. It was like a couple of grand a month, just free income, you know, passive income. So there's a lot of ways you can, you can put your radar out to protect your intellectual property and create an income stream. The rule of thumb is if something doesn't feel right to you in your gut, not in your ego, in your gut, don't do it. You've received a lot of offers to join different bands over the years. Um, when that happens, uh, and you've, you've certainly joined some great bands, is that a What's the decision process? Because you obviously want to think about being your own artist. You want to establish your name as a solo artist. But when David Lee Roth or Whitesnake comes along and says, hey, we need you to join our band, what, what, what goes through your mind in making that decision? Okay, so when Frank Zappa uh, auditioned me and, and then gave me the gig, uh, what was going through my mind was, well, it's not my music. I, I well, first of all, I couldn't believe it. You know, yeah. it was it was a little a little intimidating. And I said, it's it's not my music, and I know I'd like to do my music someday. But I love Frank's music, and I I mean, I'm not going to miss this opportunity. You know, because I didn't know anything at 20. I didn't know how to make records. I didn't know how to tour. I didn't know how to do business. I did, I knew nothing. I came from. Long Island, you know, so the, the, a better education couldn't be than what I got with Frank. And I knew that. So then when the opportunity came for something like Alcatraz, uh, I liked the idea of being in a, a rock band. I liked the way the singer sounded. And I also knew that Ingve uh, Malmsteen was in the band. So if I was to join that band immediately, I'd have a, a lot of eyes on me. Right. And I liked the guys in the band and it was an opportunity to write music and, re and make a record, make a real record, you know? So, um, and work with Eddie Kramer, you know? So that was a no brainer, you know? And then uh, when Dave Roth called, uh, I felt again, well, it's, it's not, it's my music that he's looking for, but not, not the music that's in the back of Steve's head, you know? Uh, but I was very accustomed to the rock neighborhood, so to speak, and I loved it. And uh, with Dave Roth, it was a no-brainer. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, and I and I maybe have an explanation for this, but I probably don't want to get into it. But um, when I had heard that Dave Roth, I was I was let me see, 24, 20, maybe 24, 25. I was still living in. 
Hollywood. So, so anyway, I heard that David Lee Roth was looking, was starting a band and looking for a guitar player. And I, two things came to mind. One, that's the gig that every rock guitar player in the world would like to have, right? And the second thing that came to mind was, but it's your gig. I And I, I have to tell you, I don't know why I thought that. It wasn't something, it didn't feel like a hopeful thing. It wasn't like, that's got to be my gig. I want that gig. I'm going to get that gig. It wasn't like that at all. It was just like, it doesn't matter what you do or what anybody else does. That's your gig. And I'm like, okay, you know, and two days later, the phone rings and it's Dave Roth. So that had a natural pulled to me so it was an easy decision is there an audition process with dave roth yeah or does he call you and you're offered the gig no well you know it's not like he's not going to say i want you to come down and audition for me he's like hey you know hey this is dave roth you know and and uh we got the band going and you know we got badass billy sheehan however you know how dave expresses himself and he said, and we'd like you to come down and play some stuff with us, you know? And I said, yeah. And it was never an audition. We started playing and it was like, okay, let's go. Let's go. We got this shit. Okay. <laughs> you know? So in, in both of those examples um, with Alcatraz and with David Lee Roth, I mean, even though the David, I mean, looking at David Lee Roth, just leaving Van Halen, you're basically not replacing, but you're going behind a, a very established guitar slingers both of them like and does that is that a challenge and you think i can do this or is that does that make you pause and think about that decision at all well if i thought i have to play like ingve in order to be successful at this gig that wouldn't have worked if i thought i have to play like edward to be successful at this gig it wouldn't work I said, I always felt that if you want me, make sure you know what you're asking for. And by you this know, time, I, you're confident as to your ability as a guitar player? Oh, yeah. I was, I was ready to tear it up. I mean, when we started rehearsing in the basement, those songs, I mapped them out in my head and they all had teeth. You know, I, 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 made, I made a conscious... I wasn't... Okay, so... If I was to try to recapture my frame of mind at the time, I might think it sounded something like this. this and these aren't things you think in your, you, you think in your head verbally. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of there, you know. And what that was was uh, I'm not going to compete with Edward because you can't, <laughs> you know. And I don't want to. I don't want to be Edward, you know. I, I, I would if I did. I would try to sound like him. Now, of course, he was a, a wonderful influence on so much of what I do. But I was very confident in the quirky, intense kind of guitar playing that I was doing. I loved it. I loved the way I played, and I was ready to unleash it, 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 it the best I could, the most powerful. I know what guitar players like. I know what I like. And that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted to do that and I was, I was ready for it. I wasn't intimidated. I didn't feel any of that stuff. I was just like, okay, shy boy, hold, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and that's fun, you know, and it's a great attitude to have because you're going to do your best work that way. When you, when you're excited 
about doing something that you know you're capable of doing, you're going to do it and you're going to do it good. And if I would have went into a situation like that saying in my head, this music is great. This situation is great. I love rock music. It's perfect for me. I've got these songs and I'm going to give them the best I can. And I've got ideas and I'm going to flood this song with my crazy ideas and I'm going to take it over the top. Once I have an idea, I'm going to exaggerate it. I'm going to make something so cool and powerful that I'm going to love it. But what if Edward's fans don't like me? It doesn't work that way. Right. You know, you just have to do your best. They're going to like it or not. You have no control. <laughs> so I had the pleasure of seeing the David Lee Roth band with you um, on one of your tours. And the thing that struck me, and it still strikes me to this day, is I don't know if I've ever seen a guitar player who seemed to be at one with their instrument more than I saw you on that stage. Mm. Um and, and and I think I, I read, a, I saw uh, an intro you did for a book and, and you talked about the physicality of of the guitar. And I, I just, I, I can still picture you on stage and how that guitar you carried seemed to be part of your body, more so than any other musician I've ever seen. Um, is that just my imagination or is that a conscious thing? Well, I, I can't comment on that, <laughs> you know, but um, but thank you. It's, it's very encouraging whenever, whenever, Whenever you hear that somebody is uh, moved by what you do, it's it's encouraging. You know, it encourages the art, it encourages the artist to continue in that direction. So, uh, my connection with the instrument has changed through the years, based on my frame of mind. And in any field, there's a period of time you go through where you have to hone your skill. You have to put your attention on the academics and the, the, the actual working out of things, you know, and, and that's, that's true in anything, business, sports, art. There's a period of time where most people have to go through the learning process. It's called a uh, conscious incompetence. There's these four phases, four phases. One is unconscious incompetence. And what that basically means is you don't know what you don't know. So, for instance, if you never knew what a car was, you wouldn't know how to, there would be no concept of even how to drive it. Right. So you'd be unconsciously incompetent at driving a car. And then at some point, you become consciously incompetent, uh, which is where you discover, oh, this is a car and you can drive it. You know, you, you, you know what it is, but you can't do it. So then there's a phase that you go through, and this you can apply this all to any field. There's a, a phase you go through that's more like uh, competent incompetence, meaning you're being competent at learning something you can't do. So you're focusing your attention on the learning, on the learning, on the repetition, uh, on the uh, 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 knowing if you're a cook, it's learning what all the ingredients actually taste like. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so you gotta, you have to kind of focus with your intellect okay but then there comes a point where all of the academics become second nature and when that happens you enter the phase of unconscious competence because you don't have to think about what you're doing it just happens beautifully so now you're driving a car and you're not 
when you're driving a car, you're, you're unconsciously competent. You're not thinking, okay, here comes the brake. Okay. I got to put the brake on now. Okay. Is this how the brake works? You, 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 it's just like, you don't even think about it, Right. but, but you're, con you're, you're unconsciously competent at it. In order to have a connection with an instrument that's seamless, elegant, mellifluous, connected, and almost looks wizardry, you have to enter that unconscious competence state. And when in that state, you're creating an opening in your awareness, right? For, for, this, for, for your intuition, your musical intuition to flow freely. So I, I, if I had to explain what it was you were seeing to, to try to answer your question, you saw an artist who was being unconsciously competent. Interesting. When you toured with David Lee Roth, I presume that was at a level that was bigger than anything else you'd experienced before. Huh? What did that teach you? What, what, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, which, which aspect of the music, of being a musician, do you want me to talk about? Because there was everything. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking live, but I'm, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Okay, I'll talk live. Um, when I was uh, in clubs in high school, and, you know, when I was in high school playing in clubs and stuff, and there was a particular way that I related to the audience, you know. I was new. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to be cool. And uh, when I was with Frank, I, I was unaware of the audience. Of course, I knew they were there. But my attention was bulletproof focus on Frank. It had to be. You, when you're a Zappa musician, you got to watch everything Frank is doing because at any moment... He, he'll give a signal or he'll do something and you, you got to be on it, you know? So when I joined David Lee Roth's band, that was, that was completely different. It's a, a different brain muscle because with Dave, I learned how to emanate to a large group of people. You know, I, I learned how to perform and I love performing. That, that was one of the greatest things I got from the Dave Roth band. Cause when you're in that band, in the eighties, you know, it was very different. We, we had the biggest light show, uh, in the world at the time. It actually was entered into the Guinness book of world's record. The amount of lighting cams we had like 11 semi track, you know, tractor trailers with gear and stuff. And, uh, it was a huge machine, but the performance was because the music was simple and we were, um, performers. You had these this big stage. You, you had to we, we could run as fast as we could from one side of the stage to the other. We could act as crazy as we wanted. We could wear the silliest clothes and do crazy things with our hair. So that that was so much fun, you know. And the thing that I learned was relating to a, a large audience. You know, trying to. Um, be engaging for them, you know, be, be, enga be engaging for the audience because primarily we're entertainers, you know, we're, we're service providers, you know, and I, I want to be the best entertainer I can be. It's always been my position to be the best entertainer. And I love entertaining. I like performing. I can't perform so, so much because what I play is doesn't allow me to, but I, tr I like when I'm in the, 
in the flow of that unconscious competence. And then when my body does what it does without me telling it what to do, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful feeling. And um, I'm also a ham, you know, I, I like to show off in a sense, you know, uh, tongue in cheek, you know, because it's fun. People like it unless you take it serious. And then you think I'm a pompous, whatever. And I, I can be that too. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, that was fantastic to have that experience. And that was just, that's just one aspect of it. And having Dave Roth as a mentor, it was fantastic because he was the quintessential rock star. He had more charisma dripping from him in the eighties than anybody. I mean, you know, and, and he, he worked hard with me. He worked hard with me on a lot of things and performing was one of them. Um, stepping back is one thing I want to ask was about your, your appearance in Crossroads. Mm -hmm. And, and when I, when I spoke to a few people about that, I'm going to interview you, that always comes up. How did that happen? And, and what did that do for you? As, like, it was a great opportunity. It might have been, I'm sure it was the first time that I came across you and it may, certainly made an impression. What did that role mean to you? Well, for my career, it was uh, unquantifiable. But um, the way it came about basically was I had my first solo record flexible and I had released that. And on there was a song called the attitude song, which had all these crazy guitar pyrotechnics and uh, guitar player magazine had taken the attitude song and put in a little flexi disc uh, on a flexi disc in their magazine. And that was really the kickoff of Steve Vai, the solo artist, because that I started getting a lot of, I was telling you about flexible and how it started to sell. And that, that was it. But Ry Cooter was um, composing the music for this film, Crossroads, and he needed a hotshot guitar player. So he called Guitar Player Magazine and they played him the Attitude song over the phone. And, and he said, that's the guy. And he called me up and came out to my house, which was a surprise because I was a Ry Cooter fan, you know. And he showed me the script and mentioned that they had been trying to get this to work, but they couldn't really uh, make it work. And I knew why, because they, they, it was turning into jams, you know, like trades. Right. This is this is theater. It's not real. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a movie. So you got to add the ham. So they called the right guy. <laughs> so I, I looked at the script. I read the script and I and I saw how it was laid out. And it was very plain. You know, it said. Jack Butler does this and then Eugene does this and then Jack Butler raises this. So I said, okay, great. I do this. This, this does this. And it really uh, worked great. And then the, um, the producer, the director, Walter Hill heard it. He came into the studio and he was pretty knocked out and he asked me if I wanted to play the part in the film. And I thought, well, nah, thank you, but I'm not an actor. I'm a musician. You know, I don't, don't know enough about any of that but he said wow it's nothing to know you just get up there and you play and it'll be great so i i thought about it and i looked at the script again and i said yeah i could be i could be jack butler i've got a dark streak that i can play with and uh so jack butler was born and when that film was done and it came out uh 
I noticed that you, you can have a hit record, but a, a, being in a hit movie, totally different. I mean, I was being recognized in the street, you know, and that was new. It wasn't like a mob or, you know, it was just like, hey, aren't you that guy? You know, and that went on for years and years and years. And you can't recognize me now. I'm 61. But um, I still hear all the time from so many people how that movie was sort of like a catalyst for them to start playing. And it's always nice. Yeah, that's a powerful thing. Now, is it true that that you were asked to join White Snake because of that movie? Or is that because he saw you in David Lee Roth's band? Uh, no, from what I understand, I think it was Adrian and David that saw me in the movie and thought that I would be good for White Snake. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing what that one scene gave oh, you. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, like I say to this day, I mean, I remember once, I won't mention the country, but I was at the palace of the prince and princess of this country having dinner with my wife, with a lot of other people. Right. And... This guy was a prince, right? Very, you know. And when I had to leave, he was walking me out and he said, and now I know when people come to me and say, I saw Crossroads when I was 15 and that's why I started the guitar. And they, you know, and they, they're very appreciative and they go on and on and they're very excited. Well, a prince cannot be that excited. you know. <laughs> so I remember I'm walking with him and he goes, I saw you in the film Crossroads. I was 14 and I started playing guitar. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, you know, this guy inside is going, boom, 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 you know, whatever. I don't know. And I said to him, hey, man, if we really want to screw up people, let's trade places for a couple of months. <laughs> Just imagine if you had actually won that battle. What could have happened yeah. to your career? Right. <laughs> How how conscious were you about your solo career? Like so, you have these opportunities given to you. Obviously, it raises your profile. Being in the David Lee Roth band and being in White Snake, are you constantly thinking, or not constantly, but are you thinking this is good for my brand, or do you not think that way at all? The thinking about what's good comes later. The first first and foremost you have to satisfy yourself artistically. If you don't have that, you're fucked. You know, you're just, you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be, you're never going to feel fulfilled. Worse, you can be successful at what you don't like doing. Right. So, um, first and foremost, I have to feel like I'm, I'm, so everything else is just put aside the career, the everything. And, I just want to do the best to manifest the, the quirky ideas that I have, you know, so that that's first. And then I might, then, then I figure out what now, what do I do with it? You know what I mean? What, what's the best way to deal with this? So when I had joined Dave Roth and Whitesnake, we were playing, we were selling out every arena around the world. I was making a lot of money. And we're selling millions of records. So I knew that it was fleeting and it was transitory and that it wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to chase that, that kind of success my whole life because that kind of thing requires you to think commercially, 
to a degree. And that's fine if you're a commercial artist, but the, the artist that was sitting on my shoulder basically had a lot of other ideas, you know, and they came out on Passion and Warfare. So when it came time to do Passion and Warfare, I actually felt that my career was probably over. You know, the, the career of being a rock, a successful musician, rock star is over. And I don't care because I had all that, but I didn't have the expression of my music. I mean, I had it in various, you know, bands and stuff, but not, not the undiluted music that I knew I wanted to do. Not that music that I had a secret excitement and passion for. And I knew if I didn't do that, it would became very obvious to me that that was paramount. The success is fine. It's great. Having finance, some financial security. Every now and then people saying, hi, I uh, thank you. You know, that's, that's all great. You know, I don't take that for granted. But it's nothing if you don't have your creative fulfillment. Really. And, and that's when I, I, made, uh, I made Passion and Warfare. And I thought, literally, that was it. No one's going to get this record. No one's going to. That has nothing to do with contemporary rock music or anything. It doesn't even sound like anybody's instrumental solo record. It's not Jeff Beck. It's not Ingve, It's not Eric Johnson. It's not Satriani. And I, I didn't really even think about that. All I thought was, where, who are you, Vi? You know, do it now. Do, do it because you love it. And that's what I did. So it was a big surprise, frankly, when uh, it was a success. And I remember I was on tour with, I think I was on tour with Whitesnake and I was in Toronto or something. Maybe it was America, but I was at a radio station and Passion and Warfare had been out for one week. And I didn't hear anything about the numbers on it or anything. And I walk into the lobby of this radio station where I have to take an elevator and go up. And this guy walks up to me and says, hey, man, congratulations on your record. And I, I said, well, thank you. And he goes, I, I saw in Billboard that it's number 18 with a bullet and it already is certified gold. So I thought he was, I thought he thought he was, I, I thought he was talking to the wrong person. <laughs> You know, so instead of starting a conversation with the guy, I said, yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, it's great. Thinking he's, he's got somebody, he's thinking of somebody else. My record came out a week ago. I didn't hear anything like that. 18 with a bullet, gold. There's no way. So he's talking about somebody else. <laughs> and I get in the elevator and I go up to the radio station and I sit down and the first thing the guy says to me is, how does it feel to have a record at 18 with a bullet that's a half a million sold in the first week? And I said, what? <laughs> there you have it. Wow. And you worked on it album for like five years. Did you not? Well, I start. I didn't have much time to work on it full time. Right. Because I was doing so many things. So I chipped away at it, at it for some years. But the, 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 when I got off the David Lee Roth skyscraper tour, it was hardcore. What would your idea of success have been if he didn't reach, achieve that? Like, what, what what would have satisfied you with that album? The making of it and the way it turned out. So the, the fact enough. that it got accepted so greatly was just that's a bonus. That's really nice icing. Yeah, that's a bonus. 
Because I didn't, I, I actually thought I was destroying my career. And I went ahead with it. So what could have I, what, what, that, that's the answer to your question, basically. Wow. So did that change the way you produced anything, whatever you did beyond that? Success has a insidious way of sabotaging your creative instincts if you're not careful. Because once you start selling a lot of records, and I'll just use the music business, and I've seen this happen time and time again, and I saw myself do it. Once you've had uh, some success with something, everything changes, especially when you get into the top billboard. People that you work with at that level want more. They want more success. Okay. So you find yourself, and I'm talking about your managers, your agents, your booking agents, your publicists, your record company, your, your marketing people, everybody wants more of that, especially if you get a Grammy. <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine. But what can happen is the artists can become bamboozled and, and, their, and their, their energy, their focus can be hijacked. And, and what it does is it can take them. Now, if you're Elton John and your focus is pop music and that's what you do best and you're doing really well with it, you're there. You know, you're, you're, you're satisfied. If you're, let's say, Chick Corea and you've, you're, you've got uh, your, your music and it's unique and you're touching a particular audience and you go out and you play to a certain size crowd, it's there. You're, you're there. You know, it's fine. You've got your infrastructure going. But um, most importantly, I discovered that you have to enjoy, you have to really have to be enjoying what you're doing. And if you, if you get, start getting wooed to do things other than that, chances are it's just not going to work as well. It didn't work as well for me, that's for sure, when I did it. But, but I can imagine there's expectations. And when you see numbers like that on your solo album, do you automatically start thinking, well, maybe the next one's got to be bigger or is it easy yeah. to not worry about that? No, at the time, at the time, uh, I was, I was much younger too. Uh, I thought that's great. My next record is even going to be bigger because that's what everybody in the label was surprised and shocked. And now they're like, okay, now you gotta, you know, you gotta make a record with vocals and you gotta, you know, so I'm thinking, so my shift changed. Not entirely there, you know, there's, there was still my musical integrity in it, but I was kind of derailed by the success. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it was, it was great because I, I learned a tremendous amount. I learned vital lessons that served me very well moving forward. Okay. So moving forward now, you release a new album called Inviolate. It just came out this week, I believe, or last week. Um, it, comes out, it comes out on the 28th. 28th, sorry, this week. So you now we move ahead. You're releasing an album on the 28th, Inviolate. How is the way you produce an album different from the way it was back then, having gone through the success that you've gone through? Well, you know, I think 
if a person discovers in life what they really enjoy doing and they just keep doing it, the way that you do it will evolve and the depth that you can achieve will, will evolve. So for me, that's been music and uh, my musical career um, was most beneficial to me on a psychological level in that I learned more about myself, which is the important thing through the whole process that included the fame or the success or the whatever, it includes all that. But the, the real crux of it was I, lear I learned more about myself. When you learn about yourself and you decide that the world is a, actually a great place and you're having a good time and you enjoy doing what you're doing with people, um, you can evolve your craft very deeply. And as you get older, th th you know, your, your level of wisdom changes a bit, you know, just going through life and having experiences. And what I, what I discovered to answer the question about inviolate at this point in my career uh, is that I don't need to be more famous. I don't need to be more uh, financially successful. Of course, those things can be nice, but I, that's not the reason for doing things. The reason for doing things is to push my own bar, to raise my own bar and enjoy the process. So when I set out to do Inviolate, I, I had no expectations of if it was going to do well or not, because you just don't know these things. And I just thought, okay, what, what, what is it time for you to do? And all the answers just came, you know, one of them was candle power. One of them was knapsack. One of them was teeth of the Hydra. These are those three songs, uh, have, have in them things that have raised my bar, you know, like really raised my bar. And at 61, that's really nice, you know, to raise your own bar like that, whether the world thinks so or not, is actually irrelevant in reality. Of course, there's a concern. You want people to like what you do. But really, if you're raising your own bar, that's the payoff. And um, I certainly did that with Inviolate, I, I believe. Um, you're also very giving to your fans. And during the pandemic, you would have um, question and answer sessions where you would open up mm -hmm. to all these people uh, you seem to have a great relationship with your fans where does that come from well um there's a lot of musicians that through my life i've really admired and there's almost no way to when when music is the attractive thing in life for you or whatever it is. It could be business. It could be cooking, whatever it is. For me, it's music. When, when that's the um, thing that really lights you up, when you find an artist that really connects with you, it's like, it's just heaven in a cup, you know, like I would listen to like Led Zeppelin you know, all of so much Queen and because well, I was a teenager in the 70s, you mm -hmm. know, or, or even or even Stravinsky or, you know, the music that I listened to when I would listen to 
and I'll just take Led Zeppelin, you know. Uh, if I met Jimmy Page, there'd be no way for me to explain to him the, the quality of life that I've discovered through his creative efforts. There's no, you can't, you could say, even say that, but to show that appreciation, you can't really, you know, there's, words don't work, right? So there's a lot of artists for me like that, like Tom Waits, you know? I, I thank, and this is just me, I, I thank the universe for manifesting that man at the same time in, that I'm alive. Do you know what I mean? Right. Because his music is so um, touching to me. So I know what that's like to feel almost overzealous respect, appreciation for an artist. So... It took me many, many years, many years to come to the conclusion that it's possible with all these people writing me letters and the, the wonderful things I see and that there might be some people that feel that way about what I'm doing. Because I would, I would always feel there's no way I, I could never do for somebody else what Jimmy Page did for me or Brian May or, you know, all the, the heroes, you know. So I just never I never took it seriously. You know, when people would say something like, you really changed my life, you know, I'd, I'd be like, oh, thank you, you know. But it started to dawn on me that there are few people, you know, that have that feeling about me as an artist because there's something in what I do that touches them. So I honor that, you know, because I, I don't feel responsible for it in a way. You know, because when I'm when I'm doing my thing, it's just my thing, you know, and I'm like, yeah, OK, cool. No, yes. No. You know, and you just kind of do it and then you put it out there and it's for the love of God. You know what I mean? Or something like that. And and people are tattooing it on their arm, you know. So, like, whoa. And uh, I want to honor that because I know what it means to some people. And also. There's a lot of uh, a lot of people that turn to accomplished guitar players for inspiration, how to play, you know, uh, riffs and uh, information and things like that. And I have a wealth of it. You know, I know the music business. I, I um, have been an independent artist my whole life. And I, sh I like sharing that and, and sharing the things that worked for me and the things that didn't. So um, I don't think I'm being consciously nice to one group of people, but not another. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm the same way with, with everybody. Well, it's, it's impressive. And, and I've, you know, obviously based on this interview, you've been very kind to me. And I thank you so much for giving me all this time. As I said... I know it's just another interview for you, but, you know, this is my 300th episode and this is really meaningful for me to actually sit down and talk to you. So thank you so much for doing this. I knew it wasn't just another interview for you. <laughs> but, so I, and, and I know what it meant for you because I read the... So I want to give you everything you want. We're equal. There's, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing you a favor in a sense. I'm doing what's appropriate. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, it really does mean oh, a lot you. to me. 
thank you. I'm happy. It means a lot to me, too. I appreciate it. And congratulations on your podcasts. You know, these podcasts that guys like you are doing have really, really been helpful over these past few years for a lot of people. This is how we get all of our info, yeah. you know, and, and, and it takes somebody to make it. But it does, it's not just somebody to make it. It takes somebody that really has a passion for it and is enjoying doing it. And I'm, I'm glad you found that, and I'm happy to be part of it.